Thanks for that, Tom. Um, I'm going to move on to two questions from Tim C. Uh, one is about beings in MPMR. The other is pets in MPMR. MPMR. So we're going to do the beings in MPMR first. Um, Tom, are all beings in the non-physical aware that reality is virtual? Or is there ignorance of the nature of reality? And is that a local PMR phenomenon only? Oh, no. There's, there's a... Um... <laughs> A pervasive ignorance of the nature of reality in almost all reality frames. It's not just that here in in our PMR we are uh, unaware of it. Each the big picture is elusive to uh, people who aren't grown up yet. No matter what reality frame they're in. Okay, so now the people that let's say are in uh, a very loose rule set frame, uh, they for we're all, you know, it's like the fish doesn't recognize water, right? Fish, is, fish don't particularly realize they're swimming in water. It, it's just the medium they exist in. So it just is like it's always been there. It always will be there. They don't really think about water. Uh, well, that's the way it is when you're, in a, when you're in a virtual reality. You just think it is the way it is, and you don't really think about it being any other way than that. So it's just a matter of if you're in a, a very loose rule set, then there's more things that you can, you know, you're not as, as limited in some ways, but you're more limited in others. You're not as limited in the fact that you can teleport and you can maybe do other neat tricks like that, but you're more limited in that the number of choices you have and the interactions and ability to learn from those choices is much, is much less than if you're in a more physical, like a tighter rule set virtual reality. So they're just different. And the entities that live in either one of those kinds of realities don't really see the other reality as, as even existent. They just there, that's all they know. That's the way it is. And they're not really thinking about a big picture. What does all this mean? You know, what's the purpose? Why am I here? And uh, most entities, those kind of big picture thoughts never enter their mind. And that's true of entities that are, that we call non-physical um, and the ones that we call physical. Of course, you know, physical is in the mind of the beholder. These entities that live in these, these uh, uh, simple rule set reality frames, they find themselves to be physical and they would, they would, if they knew we existed, they'd find us to be non-physical. So it's, it's not a matter of, of uh, you know what's physical or not, they're just different reality frames with different rule sets, and for the most part, entities do not think much about the big picture. Okay, um, so that's beings. And what about pets? Now, Tim is going to use the um, the example of a dog, but I'm, I'm assuming it would be the same for any animal. Uh, since dogs do not have any cultural filter to use when leaving PMR, such as a bright white light or a tunnel, what is it like for, say, a dog when they do leave the physical? <laughs> that's interesting that I should get that question. Uh, I had just been asked recently the very same question uh, by uh, somebody who had lost a pet and they wanted to know what was their pet's experience. So when I first got that, I kind of shook my head and say, well, you know, I don't know. I'm, you know, I, I'm not a dog or a cat or a horse, but then I went to the, I basically went to the system. I took their, their animal and I said, okay, I would like to feel that animal's feelings, feel their, their sense. You know, are they upset? Are they frightened? Are they mellow? You know, what, what's their sense of their temperament and their feeling from the time that they, that their avatar stopped functioning you know, to wherever they are now. And this was an animal that was only, uh, you know, let's say uh, it's only been a, a, a few days, maybe a week since this animal had died. So I did that. And it's the first time I had done that. So otherwise I would have told you, well, I don't know. I'm not an animal. I, you know, I don't understand. I don't know exactly what they would feel because it's not my experience. If it's not my experience, it's not my truth. I could maybe intellectualize it, but that's just me making things up. So I actually did, just a few days ago, experience what it's like for an animal to uh, make this journey. So it's just interesting that I do that, you know, yesterday and then today you ask me this question. Anyway, um, what I found out with this particular animal was that 
it, of course, was very miserable up to the time that its avatar dies. It's not healthy. It hurts. There's pain. You know, it, it's obviously not having a happy day. So it's this miserable animal. And then suddenly the misery's gone. It's still aware. And the misery's gone. And the first thing was like a question, huh? What's, you know, I don't have, it doesn't hurt anymore. You know, I'm, I'm not, you know, crippled anymore. I'm not, you know, whatever it was, you know, it's not, uh, it's not like that anymore. I feel whole again. And then the next thing is, was sort of a looking around kind of, well, where am I? You know, what is this? Curiosity, no panic, no fear. Just what is this? And taking the time to kind of look around and everything's kind of foggy. And then after a, um, just a little bit of that, the, the idea came, there wasn't any scent. There was no sense. They could still see. It was just foggy and they couldn't tell where they were, but they couldn't smell anything. And then they... Um, they kind of had this realization, you know, like Dor- Dorothy did, that she was no longer in Kansas. You know, they kind of have that that sense of I'm someplace else, obviously. I don't know how I got here, but, you know, I'm here. The next thing that was interesting was a, was a uh, sense of motion. They actually did feel like they were moving, but it was moving without moving. And this particular animal translated that into... It's like when being held by a person and that person is walking and taking you someplace. And it's like being riding in a car where you're going someplace and you're obviously moving, but you're not moving. You're moving, but being still. And that was the image that they had of being held and walked or being in a car. And that uh, they had this sense. So they knew they were going someplace, but they really weren't moving, but somehow they were moving anyway. The memory they had of their past family, of where they lived, what they ate, all the rest of that went was was uh, degenerating very quickly. It didn't take long. It was uh, very quick. They had lost that. They became just interested in what they were doing and now where they were going. And within a little bit of time after that, they got very interested in the destination. It started to feel familiar. It started to feel like home, like this was a good thing, you know, that was going on, whatever it was and wherever they were going. And then they got into a sense of, of kind of peace and everything's okay and acceptance. And that's where they stay for a while, which then I kind of backed out a little bit, not just from that experience, but to see kind of a more general experience. And it seems like that at least in this individuated unit of conscience to which this particular critter belonged, they don't just reincarnate quickly. They take some time just to, I don't know, um, decompress, just to kind of be in a warm safe, nice spot. So they just kind of hang out, if you will, for a while in that bask, in that sort of a of a uh, space, which builds them back up. It's like, it's like a rest, like R&R, you know, like a person would go on a vacation, you know, to, to uh, kind of get out of the, get off the treadmill for a while to renew themselves. Well, this is basically how the critters renew themselves. It's like, that's, that's their space. So they spend a little time there and then I, I had some conversation with the uh, individual unit of consciousness, some uh, changing or just passing ideas back and forth. And this particular animal, being a domestic animal, was going to have to be placed carefully rather than just haphazardly because it had been on a path that, you know, had it, had it, if it got reincarnated, let's say, as a feral cat in some you know, awful place, it wouldn't have coped. It wouldn't have done well. It was kind of past those experiences onto choice-making of another type, of a more sophisticated type. So that wasn't a good experience for this particular critter. This critter would have needed to be in another uh, supportive kind of 
relationship-centered environment, whether it was relationship with other critters or with people or both. That wasn't so as important as long as it was a one where choice making was was the key thing, not just staying alive. So that was a, and until that situation came up, then it was just going to sit there and kind of bask in this this feeling feeling groovy, you know, kind of a a place. So that was, and then the question was, well, you know, what are they going to do next? And my answer was, well, I don't know. That hadn't been decided yet because they do have this kind of R&R time where they recharge before they go back in. Because once they get back into the physical reality, they're kind of always sort of on. They're kind of tense and, and uh, you know, life is chancy and sometimes difficult. And this this little time they spend between lives is kind of a recharge time. So I would not have thought that that was kind of a new idea to me. So I can answer that question. Uh, well, I guess I just did. And uh, only because I yesterday I took the time out to do it. I mean, I guess you were talking about our friend's cat Isis there, Tom. It's been a very sad few months, actually, for losing pets. You obviously lost Strider and, and, and another beloved pet recently. Um, animals do play a very important role in our lives. So it's, it's nice to know that they actually do have a, a nice experience moving on. That's, that's, that's very comforting yeah. for me and for, for a lot of others. Okay, we're going to go back to Faith. Um, Faith, you have another question. Yes, hi, thank you. Um, um, says when we deal with our issues in life, we gain points. Please cl- clarify, what do you mean by gaining points? Do we get more choices or do we are given more? option as a result okay the last part dropped out but i got the first part so let me let me do that and if i fall short then you can we can try to get that last part but the voice just dropped out toward the end um what do i mean by by uh you know gaining points well the gaining points thing is just a, a metaphor that plays on the virtual reality video game which you uh you know you level up Basically, you go from a you know from a level ten to a level twelve or something because you've you've created you've had more experience. So it's just a metaphor making a play on on that. You don't really get points. What you do is you become you have a low you become a lower entropy consciousness is what happens. And as you become a lower entropy consciousness, you have a larger decision space, which means yes, you get more choices. You live in a bigger a bigger world. Um, the more fear you have, really, the less choices you have. The, the fear tends to create constraints. Beliefs create constraints. Ego creates constraints. Love and growing up gets rid of constraints. So the more constraints you get rid of, then the bigger reality that you live in, the more choices that you have. And that's kind of what I mean by leveling up or you know getting points. Now, there's a lot, your growing up process isn't just one or two big things. It's often a sum of thousands of little things, little choices that you made, little choices that you made to to be helpful, to care about somebody else as opposed to care about yourself or, you know, being uh, uh, trapped by your beliefs. So as you do these, these small things where your choices are good, they all, that all adds up. It all helps you even make good choices when the things are big things to do, not just little things to do. So my point was, when you get points, I I meant that every choice you make can be made out of love and caring or can be made out of self-centeredness. Now, there are a few choices, I guess, that don't fall on either side. I can say, well, I choose to scratch my head on this hand or I could scratch my head with that hand. You know, right hand, left hand, that was my choice, but neither one of them causes me to grow up or, you know, evolve or de-evolve. It's a irrelevant choice. So it's not every choice, but most of your choices in relationship, how you interact with people, they often, all of those little choices, how you interact with your children, with your parents, with your neighbors, with the people at work, with your boss, all of those things have opportunities to do it with fear or with love. And as you make those 
hundreds of choices a day, you tend to grow up or and evolve or de-evolve with those choices. And yes, you get a bigger, a bigger reality to live in, which means more decisions, which means harder choices because now you've passed the easy choices and now you get harder choices. And when you master those, you get harder choices yet because that's just the way it is. And as you evolve and grow up, then your, your, um, your challenges two or three levels back would seem like they were just too hard, but now they're just right. And as you evolve more, they will look, but you'll look back at them and think that they were easy. So that's the nature of growing up. Bigger choices, more choices, and everything gets more fun. Everything gets happier. Everything gets to be Okay, uh, nothing really gets you disturbed or angry or upset. Life is good. You see most everything from a positive viewpoint. That's the way you feel as you as you grow up. Everything gets better and better. Um, less and less struggle, more satisfaction. Right, Tom, the next question we're going to go to is from Brian. It's a very interesting question on PMR frame rates. Now, he actually submitted this way back in November. So, uh, Brian, I do apologize that we are getting to it just now, but certainly better late than never in this case. Uh, Tom, I have a question on the PMR frame rate, the refresh rate of this simulation that we're in. I've listened to your Speed of Light video over on YouTube and was able to derive the base equation from listening to it as follows. Plank length over frame rate equals the speed of light, a constant. Since two of these values are known, the speed of light and the plank length constant, then should it not be possible to determine the third variable here, which is our PMR frame rate? But I'm having a hard time locating this value, or perhaps if even anyone has actually taken the time to calculate this in terms of a more precise value. I would guess that you have performed this calculation, so if so, what is the value of our PMR frame rate? And is it possible to get this value in the usual units, such as the frames per second, that we would typically use for our TV screens or computer monitor frame rates? Sure. Um, it um, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with Planck length. The way you uh, determine um, the speed of light in our virtual reality, but you know, in general, every virtual reality has a maximum speed. It's just the nature of a virtual reality that you're going to get a top speed in that virtual reality. Um, the smallest unit of length we'll call a Planck length. And since we have a 3D reality, then we have a smallest unit of volume, which would be a, say be a Planck length cubed if you want. But now we're just being very general. I and mean, these are more metaphorical than they are, have to be precise. I'm not trying to say that it's you know, our space is made up of little cubes, um, just that it goes as, as length cubed so that you can get the right, uh, the right math here and, and get the right number out. So you have a, a plank length and you have a plank time. Okay. And those are basically the, the resolution of our reality frame in distance and time. So the smallest chunk of distance you can move at a time is this delta x. Now, when I say that that's a Planck length, I don't mean that as an absolute thing. Right now, that's about as close as our scientists have come up with a with a a number or a concept to use for that for that uh, size of our pixel, if you will. Now, this is a 3D pixel, not a area pixel like we have on our flat screen monitors. This would be a 3D pixel. So we, so because we know we have a that space and time are both quantized, they're both discrete units. Then physics comes to this Planck length as the smallest delta t. So that's why I'm associating our delta t with the Planck length. I'm not necessarily that's not necessarily a you know a given that those two are equal, but it's the best science has been able to come up with. We can only see things that are so small and and uh, deal with our numbers just from what we understand. We may understand, you know, a hundred years from now that there's another delta T that's smaller than that, that's, that uh, we've come up with. 
But anyway, we do have a smallest delta T. And we do have a smallest delta X. Okay. And we'll call those a quantum of space and a quantum of time. Now, the delta T is what you're talking about as your frame rate. Okay. But that's just a T. It's a, it's a little space of time. If you want frequency, then it's one over delta T. Okay. So then that'll give you a, a frequency. That's a per second. Delta T is in times, seconds. Delta T for our frame rate is about 10 to the minus 44 seconds. And that's just a round. I like to keep the exponents round and easy for people to remember. So you may move it a order of magnitude or two one way or the other to make it fit the equations. But basically, it's about 10 to the minus 44 seconds is our delta T. And I think the Planck length is somewhere like 10 to the minus 36 meters. So a Planck delta volume would be somewhere around that cubed would be the volume in meters. Okay, so the frame rate then is every delta T, everything in the, everything in the simulation gets recalculated. And then you go in a next delta T, everything gets recalculated. Next delta T, it all gets recalculated. That's how dynamic simulations are developed. They develop with what's called the outer time loop. The outer time loop is a delta T. And every time you increment delta T by one more delta T, by one more unit of the smallest unit, then you recalculate, say, the position of where everything is. And everything that moved, all the dynamics get recalculated. So that's the frame rate. It's 1 over delta T. So if it's uh, 10 to the minus 44 seconds, you know, if it's 10 to the minus and 1 over that, then it's 10 to the 44 seconds. So that's a pretty high frame rate for our, um, for our uh, virtual reality here. But that sets the resolution, you see. That's what's important. It sets the resolution. Now, what that has to do with the upper speed limit like I say, every virtual reality has to have an upper speed limit. The world of Warcraft has to have an upper speed limit. So does The Sims. What it is, is you have a delta T divided by a delta X. That's a velocity. Nothing can move through the virtual reality any faster than moving one delta X every delta T. Okay, now, you could say, well, what if it jumped four or five delta X every delta T? That would be teleporting through your virtual reality. That would be disappearing at you know at this x and moving five x over and reappearing. Well, unless you have a virtual reality where teleporting is allowed, then that's not you know that's not allowed here. You have to move continuously or or through contiguous points to get to where you're going. And if you have to move through contiguous points to get you where you're going, then you can only go as fast as one delta X for every delta T. That turns out to be the speed of light. That's why virtual realities have upper speed limits. And uh, we're no different. Ours is the speed of light. If you looked at the resolution of World of Warcraft, you could compute what their you know, upper limit was in in. Uh, in that virtual reality. It's as fast as anything can move in that virtual reality. So that's kind of the relationship of frame rate, uh, period, one over the periods of frame rate, and uh, the fact that uh, our reality is pixelated. So this reality is a bunch of pixels. As long as it's digital, it has to be pixels. It can't be continuous. Things that are continuous are really too hard to deal with you can't model things well that way making it digital is is a much better way to model now if you looked at if you saw that speed of light you realize that that the delta t and delta x then give the the overall resolution of our reality and no programmer would have a virtual reality running at a smaller delta T and a smaller delta X than they needed because the smaller these things are, the more computation it takes, right? If, if, you, if you have to recompute something every millionth of a second, you're going to do a lot more computations than if you only have to compute something every tenth of a second. So the smaller your delta T is, 
the more calculations you have to do. So people who make people, uh, entities too, who make uh, virtual realities don't want the resolution to be any more than they need the resolution to be. Otherwise, they're just making more computations and it doesn't get them anywhere because they don't have to have anything that that uh, uh, accurate. Okay, so what, uh, three or 400 years ago, you know, we didn't see tiny things. Best we had was maybe a magnifying glass, you know, for seeing tiny things. I'm not even sure when the microscope was invented, but, uh, you know, even then that improved things a little bit. So there wouldn't be any point in making this reality uh, with a with a very, very small delta T and delta X, only what it required for the throughput. Now, of course, that depends on how much throughput you've got to burn. How fast is your computer? You see, that's another uh, consideration. So uh, if you want to... If you want to give this reality more resolution, because now we're smashing atoms over at CERN and we need much finer resolution, well, what you can do is you don't want to change C because awful lot of stuff and how this reality works depends on that constant. That's one of the fundamental constants we've got here. And if you change that around, you're going to change a whole lot of other relationships that's going to mess with your physics here. So you want to keep that close to being constant, but the situation's digital. You just can't pick any value for delta T. It has to come in these little chunks. You can't get something that's in between those chunks, you see? So you have to make a smaller delta T and a smaller delta X. So the delta X over delta T, the speed of light, that ratio stays about the same, but it's impossible to do it precisely because you can only move these values of delta T and delta X one chunk at a time. You can't move them a half a chunk. So you're not going to make that value of C be exactly the same to 25 decimal places. That's going to be too hard. So what you do is make it close enough that nobody notices. And that evidently isn't too hard. So that's why we've seen the, the speed of light change occasionally. Uh, to a, a greater degree than the error in the measurement. And that would uh, should have happened sometime uh, around the late 1800s when science was starting to dig into things a bit, 1900s. So anyway, uh, that's maybe more than the question deserved, but it was a long time coming, so I guess we give him a, a, good, a good answer. It, it was a long time coming, so I'm afraid another one actually... Um... Channel 79 from the forum sent another question in back in November, so we'll just get him on to that one as well. So uh, hopefully you give him a, a reasonable and acceptable answer as well. Tom, it's understandable that some crimes in the LCS go unnoticed. So I'm thinking about an idea where a state of being automatically alarms the system of itself. To clarify, if an IUOC or a free will awareness unit is being attacked or, say, is in a helpless situation such as being permanently trapped somehow while being unable to contact anyone, that individual is most likely in a state of panic. Some of those situations may require interference with and should at least be noticed or known by the system. The idea then is for every unit of consciousness to automatically broadcast their state of being to the LCS. A security part would be able to sort the state of being in terms of medical urgency. My question then is, is this practically feasible or would it even be desired at all? Well, you know, something like that, but not quite that precise and not quite that organized does take place. If you are in, you know, if you are a consciousness that is learning and growing and, uh, you know, basically having a promising future, if you will, of lowering your entropy, then the system tracks you more carefully. And what you do in the state you're in and issues you're having, uh, it may help you out as needed. If you're not growing and you're, the probability is you're not going to decrease your entropy any. Matter of fact, you might even increase it a little bit because you're making a lot of bad decisions and so on. The system does not track you very much. It just lets you deal with whatever it is you need to deal with, and hopefully you'll grow up from whatever that is. So there's, a, there's kind of an uneven um, helping system already there 
but it's not you know it's not evenly focused on every IUOC. There's lots and lots of IUOCs. If you start with the bumblebees and the you know and the birds and insects and work your way up, there's an awful lot to keep track of there, and it's probably just not too practical to try to track all of that. So instead, you just track that part that seems to be working out well for you, that part that's being productive, that part that is, uh, um, you know, growing up. So you spend more of your energy tracking that, and the rest of it, uh, you kind of let it go to its own its own devices, or sporadically. You know, it's like, um, you know, management by crisis, I guess, in a way. If there is a really major crisis someplace, then that would draw attention. But if there isn't, then there's really nothing to draw attention. So it's an uneven thing. So yes, something like that is in effect, but it's not like you say. It's not a universal system. The the system wants to get as much bang for its buck as it can. So it does that. It expends those resources required to optimize its growth. And that doesn't necessarily mean spending resources on every possibility. So that is already there and and does does work that way. Now, those people who kind of have the attention of the larger consciousness system, they will tell you that they appear to have a charmed life, that as things happen, you know, like accidents or other sorts of things, just miraculously something will happen that will take them out of harm's way. And not only does that happen once, but it happens sometimes multiple times, sometimes even regularly. You know, they they find uh, that uh, the circumstances just work out such that they miss the big pileup out on the interstate because, you know, as they were going to get on, they noticed something that they needed to do. So they stopped and then they got on later. And now just in front of them is this 300-car pileup that they would have been right in the middle in if they just hadn't had this intuition they needed to stop and check their tires or something else like that uh, happens. And people lead what they call charmed lives because the system does take care of them and keep them out of trouble and keep them alive so they can keep uh, going on. So it, it works that way. But it's gonna it's going to pay more attention the more valuable its assets are, are going to get more of the attention. That's just... Um, you know, being efficient. Don't feel bad if you feel like you're getting left out. That's not the point. You know, uh, you just, you're just wherever you are and you just keep growing up and eventually you'll be different. So it's uh, don't uh, compare yourself with others. Just uh, be who you are and do the best you can. That's all it takes to be one of those that's successful. To be successful, you don't have to have an entropy less than this. You know, it's not it's not graded like that. To be successful, you have to be doing well with what you've got, whatever that is that you've got. At whatever level you are, if you're doing well with what you've got, you're making good choices, you care about your choices, then you'll get the help that you need. Perfect. Thanks, Tom. Um, the next one's from Mikhail Grushka, who's over in uh, Krakow, Poland. Uh, he sent us an email. He said, uh, Keith and Donna, listen, I was positively surprised to see my question asked in a recent fireside chat. Glad we still have the ability to, uh, to surprise you there, Michael. Um, <laughs> I'd like to thank you, and especially Tom, as I found the answer totally satisfying. Uh, during that same fireside chat, someone also asked Tom about dreams, and it li- reminded me of something that I also wanted to ask Tom one day, if it's possible. So here goes. You're going to get that one day today. Um, I know that normal dreams can still be useful for growth, Yet having some experience of lucid dreaming, I'd like to be lucid as much as possible, perhaps every dream. With the help of sharper awareness and support of my intelligence in such a state, I believe it would be very beneficial to grow my growth of understanding. It bothers me after waking up when I realize that I was just on autopilot in those, in those dreams. I wonder, however, is all-time lucidity really a good thing, or is that just my ego's point of view? Is it desirable to be lucid most of the time, or is it even possible? Tom, are you lucid all the time in dreams, or do you also experience bizarre dreams where you simply don't know that you're in a dream reality at all? Um, as in all things, balance is important. 
Okay, it's probably not a good thing that all your dreams are lucid. Dreaming has a has a, a value of its own, just regular dreaming, not lucid dreaming. When you're dreaming and like you say on autopilot, what that really means is that the choices you're making in that dream are your choices out of your being level, not out of your intellect, because your intellect is disengaged. That's what you mean by autopilot. Well, the fact that you're making choices out of your being level is, is a good thing. You know, you can look back at those dreams and see how you acted. What were the choices you made? And that's you. That's the way you are at the being level. So you get a chance to go interact in a situation where your interaction is only at the being level. Whereas here in this reality frame that we're in and you're awake, you interact and you almost always interact through your intellect. Well, that intellect you know, is, is often an image of you. It's your image of yourself is basically where that intellect is. And that intellect can confuse you, can tell you whatever you want to hear, can tell you you're really doing a great job. And yes, you really should be angry at that kind of a situation because those people deserve it. And your intellect will justify anything it is that you really feel like you want to do. It's a great justifier. Whatever you do, it can find a reason why that was the really the best thing to do and you're you know you're you're all within your rights and that's that's what anybody would do that's one of the jobs of your intellect is to make you feel good about yourself so the regular dream is an important set of experiences from which you can learn because even if you don't remember that dream you're still making those choices and you're still learning from it you see, your intellectual awareness isn't all the awareness that you have. It's just what you run this, this uh, your 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 uh, avatar with when your avatar is awake. But when your avatar is sleeping, you, the consciousness, are still making choices. You, the consciousness, are still learning. You're still raising your entropy or lowering your entropy based on the quality of those choices. And the fact that your avatar has no idea what just went on that night doesn't mean you've learned any less. Okay? We have to get away from the idea that our learning and our growing is only in our intellect. That learning and growing at the being level continues night and day. All the choices that we make in any conditions. So you don't want to phase that out and have all your, uh, all your dreams now also powered by your intellect as opposed to just normal dreams. Not a good idea. But you can use that lucid dream to help yourself grow up, to explore the larger reality. And the way that works is, is that once you get some facility with getting around in the larger reality, you begin to feel kind of small. You used to be big, you know, you used to be an important person that was in charge of, you know, a certain amount of stuff. You made these decisions. People depended on you and all of that. And then you get into the larger consciousness system, and suddenly you realize just how small you are, how large the system is, and you just are a tiny little cell of it, you know, doing your own little thing. And that can create a lot of humility to have that sense of smallness. You also realize this is another, so that's a teaching point. Exploring the larger consciousness system will teach you some things that are that are good as far as growing up. That's one of them. It teaches you smallness, teaches you humility. The second thing it teaches you is you realize that there's there's rarely any certainty into what it is you're experiencing because you're interpreting it. You could interpret it this way or that way. Well, which was it? Was it this way or was it that way? Well, you could interpret it either way. So there's uncertainty with everything. And that's another big learning point about this reality is that you control almost nothing. You will never control anything more than almost nothing. And you might as well get used to living in uncertainty because that's just the nature of existence, always uncertain. Now, how do you live with that uncertainty? Well, now with your newfound humility, because you're small, then you find out that, that you're not only small, but you're totally out of control. 
and you don't control much, you're not in charge of much other than yourself and your own choices. And that's all you're in control of. So you better make those count because that's really all that you've got uh, uh, to work with. And then that kind of reorients you a bit from that very important person you used to be that was a, you know, that was a big wheel and very important and controlled everything. So those are big steps into growing up. And you can get that by exploring the larger consciousness system. That is, if you explore it with the idea that, you, that you're trying to learn about the nature of reality. Now, if you explore it as a, you know, as a, as like you're in a theme park or you're, uh, you know, at the fair and it's just fun and see what you can do and where you can go. And it's, it's all for your ego's amusement. And so that you can tell people that you fly around at night because that sounds really cool. Then you're not going to learn any of those things. You're not going to learn humility. You're not going to learn, you know, smallness. You're not going to learn uncertainty. You won't learn any of that. But, uh, and eventually you'll stop doing it. It'll all go away. And that'll be the end of that, you know, of that phase, that opportunity you had will have been wasted. So you can learn a lot from those lucid dreams because it gets you out in that larger consciousness system, but only if you really are trying to learn something about the nature of reality. So I'd say, yes, go do it. It can be very profitable. It can be a waste of time if you don't learn anything from it. Uh, but you don't want to do it exclusively because those regular dreams are important, an important part of your growth and learning too. So um, balance in all things. And also it's those dream uh, scenarios you get is how the system measures your progress and how you're doing and what you're ready for next. So it knows whether it needs to give you lesson plan A or lesson plan B. You don't get B until after you've mastered A. You see, well, they need to know if you're on lesson plan A, when have you mastered it to where they can start lesson plan B, which is a little more challenging. Well, they'll give you situations in your dreams. Suddenly you'll find yourself, you know, in some bizarre situation, but it recall it calls for you to make choices right away. You have to make choices. What are you going to do? You're going to run out of the burning building or you're going to try to go upstairs and, and save the people up there. You know, what, what are the choices you're going to make? And you make those choices. And because you're always making them at the being level, the system knows exactly what you're made of at the being level because of the choices you make. So that's a way that the system knows what you might need next. Any synchronicity it might be tossing your way if you're a serious seeker will maybe be based on those results. If you never get into that dream state, then you're going to keep the system kind of uh, blind as to where you are and what would be profitable for you next. And you wouldn't want to do that. Thank you, Tom. Mikhail, I hope we uh, managed to surprise you again there. Uh, next, we have Sveta. Um, she has a quick question for you. Not that uh, I suppose any question or answer is indeed that really quick. Well, I don't know about the questions, but the answers aren't quick. I can pretty much guarantee that. That's true. <laughs> uh, no complaints there. <laughs> uh, I have a question. Um, I'm on, when I'm in another reality, I'm on a very intimate level with my ego. And like you say, get rid of fear, get rid of ego. To get rid of fear for some reason is much easier for me than to get rid of ego. It's constantly there. I literally, not literally, uh, I imagine it burning. I imagine uh, it beheading. Uh, I can't get rid of it. It's constantly co uh, complaining. It's constant, constantly uh, devalues my every thought. And... Mm -hmm. Even worse than that, it devalues the questions I receive from uh, my individuated uh, unit of consciousness. I mm -hmm. think, I don't know, I have a nerve maybe, maybe uh, I'm too much, but I think I got to the level when I uh, talk to my individuated unit of consciousness. Is it possible even, or uh, it's something else maybe? Is well, it possible that I connected to it? Sure, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
possible. But anyway, your question is, uh, this intellect, how can you get it to sit down and be quiet? Uh, only with practice. You know, that's that's one of the things that, that um, you really begin learning with meditation. You learn to quiet your mind, to keep those thoughts out of your mind. And I don't know whether you practice meditation or have practiced it for a long time, but that should be one of the things that you learn is how to just hold that empty state and not have any thoughts come in. Well, that's a good place to start once you can do that and hold that state. Now, though, when you start to actually do something, you interact with somebody, you get a message, you connect, suddenly that, that intellect jumps back into the game and wants to take control. It wants to analyze it and judge it and uh, tell you, uh, you know, what to think of it, that sort of thing. And I don't know how to tell you what to do about that. It just It's just practice, just like it was in meditation. When you first started meditating, you probably could only keep your thoughts away for seconds and then minutes, you know, and, and then tens of minutes. It gets better. You just have to keep telling that intellect, shush, sit down, be quiet. I'm getting some information here, but out. I'll let you know when I need you. You know, because you will need it eventually. You'll want to assess that information and and decide, is it useful or not? And you'll need your intellect. But tell them, this isn't the time. I'll need you later, but I don't need you right now. I'm in the gathering mode, not in the analysis mode. I'm not judging it now. I'm just gathering it now. So please sit down, be quiet, let me gather. And then I'll come get you when it's time you know, to, uh, to do the analysis and do the judging and decide whether it's, it's useful or not, but not now. And with practice, it will, it will leave you alone. It'll see the virtue of, of the fact that it's not useful to interrupt the gathering process with the analysis process. Those two things are, should be done at different, different times in different states. And, uh, just, practice at it uh savita it's it's uh, there's there's no real easy way to make it be quiet you just have to keep putting it in its place but don't get angry at it and don't be upset with it that'll make it worse just gently put it aside and say not now this is not the time the time will come later and we'll we'll go over all this stuff at a later time you know but right now i, I just want to be in the receive mode i'm being open now not analytical and eventually it'll it'll obey you and and wait yeah practice sorry i don't have any real good technique there but just practice is is really all that you can do i understand thank you so the next question is from sharma on the forum uh do specific lessons that need learning run in consecutive lives. It would seem logical for an IUOC to concentrate on a certain fear or further developing a part of itself over consecutive PMR lifetimes from different perspectives until that fear is abolished or lessons learned at the being mm -hmm. level. I've heard Tom say his last few lifetimes were pre preparing him for writing MBT, so they must have had similar settings at that free will awareness unit level. Yes, and I guess the question is, is this so? Yes, she described it uh, very well. That is so. It, uh, your, your learning is not you know, just in this lifetime. It's not you're set here to, with, with just an end goal. You work on something, and you may work on that same thing over you know, 10 or 20 lifetimes. You may be working on, on a set of issues because those issues will express themselves in 10 or 20 different ways. And you may get one way under control and it just pops out in a different way, which means you haven't really beaten it yet. So you need to keep working on it. So, yes, issues will continue from lifetime to lifetime until they are they were dealt with. There is no there is no uh, you don't get promoted to the next grade just because you're old enough. You know, it's not like our public school system. You know, well, he's 10 years old, you know, put him in. You know, put him in this grade. It's not like that. You basically level up uh, or get to a point where you have a bigger space and so on. You have to earn it. 
you have to earn every point of it. And if it takes you a hundred lifetimes to get over a certain issue, well, then a hundred is what it'll take. And that's how long it'll be for you to work on it. If you can get over it in 10, then 10 is all it takes. So it's, it's not like you work hard. You know, I get a, a an E for effort, you know, and uh, pass me anyway, because I've worked really hard. It doesn't work like that. So you, you, you earn, you earn your way all the way. There's, there's nothing, uh, it, you know, wouldn't do to just give you something you didn't earn. It, it's the growth is in the learning, right? It's in the earning. When you earn it, it's yours at the being level. If you don't earn it, it's not yours. So it's, the system can't work any other way. It's not a mean system. It's just that's the way it has to work. All right, Tom, thank you very much. Um, next question, JR Stokes 53 again from the forum. Tom, I have a question about the limitations that the human body puts on consciousness. I recently watched a great documentary about a boy who was blind and autistic, also had severe learning difficulties, but he had an amazing musical talent, being able to play every piece of music he had ever heard from memory or could also immediately repeat a piece he'd just heard for the first time. I was wondering if each one of us has this ability at the consciousness level, but the physical restriction of the body does not allow us to access it, except in certain cases, such as this boy, where the brain has different constraints than the most of us would have. Or is there simply another explanation for this kind of phenomenon? No, I think uh, the first explanation is probably close to the truth is that we all have the potential to do amazing things. If we develop that potential, it takes a lot of time. So if you really want to be a, you know, an Olympic swimmer, you're going to be swimming four hours a day, you know, probably six days a week for probably, you know, seven or eight years before you get to the point where you're a contender, you know, for an Olympic spot. So to be that uh, good at something takes a lot of time and effort. So most of us don't get that good uh, at anything. We just stay good enough at a whole lot of things, and that kind of enables us to maximize our, our learning. But we do have the potential for doing amazing things. You can teach yourself to think in ways that you wouldn't think possible. You can teach yourself almost the skills of a calculator to where somebody says, what's the square root of 3,872? And within a few seconds, you can tell them. You see, we train our bodies to do interesting things, but it takes time. Let's say something simple, some physical thing, like catch a ball. You know, when you're three-year-old first, tries to catch a ball, they're not very good at it. You know, the ball hits them in the middle of the chest and they kind of grab at it and they, they miss it by a mile. They're just not able to calculate the trajectory of the ball and coordinate that trajectory with the motion of their muscles. They have to train their nervous system and their muscular system to do that. The way you train it is you build an algorithm. For that, you solve that problem just like you'd solve that problem if you were, uh, you know, had to write the computer code for a robot to catch a ball. You'd have to write the algorithm that looks at the trajectory, progresses the trajectory forward to where the ball is going to be in a future place in time, and then move the muscles and get the hands to that point at that time. You see, well, that's a pretty complex calculation. And if we had to calculate it all out, we could never do it in time. We'd be hit by the ball before we had a time, you know, to uh, go through the first bit of algebra. But we can train our brain to do that calculation, exactly that calculation, instantly. So that ball is no more than 20 feet off the bat when that guy in the outfield starts running to be in the right point so that he's there when the ball gets there. He knows immediately where to go and exactly what angle to run at and exactly how high to jump so that his hand is right where that ball is, what, you know, three seconds later, you know, 100 100 yards later, he's at the right spot. You train yourself with practice to create the algorithms that compute 
that solution to that problem. You have to forward that trajectory in time and the calculation to do that, your brain does it. You don't know it's doing it. You just train your body to do that. And so does any athlete. So does any ballerina. So does anybody who has a, an ability to make their body do things that the average person can't do. They have to train it. Well, you can train your mind the same way. You can train your mind to do square roots. You just have to work at it. And pretty soon your mind acts just like a calculator. You don't have to think about it. You just see the answer. It's not necessarily a good use of your time unless square roots is a big problem of yours. But in any case, it's interesting what you can do, you know, with a mind, how you can develop it to be exceptional just by training it to create the algorithms that are necessary to make it function in a particular way. Well, this way, Keith, that this, this boy had was music and being autistic, he wasn't using all of his mind power to do the things that other people do because he wasn't doing those things. He wasn't engaged in those activities. He wasn't relating in the way other people do. So he had a whole lot of excess uh, mind power, if you like, that was sitting there on idle. And if he got interested in music, he could train his brain to where it could probably read a frequency, you know, to six decimal places. And he could probably, you know, have a memory for notes and, and tunes that was perfect. And again, the consciousness can do that. The consciousness is a digital information system. Computing a trajectory of a baseball is a physics problem. You know, it's just a problem of doing the calculations. And you can train to do it. Now, if you go take pencil and paper and do it, you got to understand the physics. But if you just run after that ball, run after that ball, and the 10,000th time that ball goes out there and you start catching it, and you keep doing it, and you keep practicing, what you're doing is you're creating an algorithm in that consciousness. You're creating a solution to that problem, and that solution becomes automatic. That guy out in the outfield doesn't think, oh, he hit the ball like that. It's going to make it go over here, so I better start running in this direction. And, oh, let's see, that was a 30-degree elevation with a velocity of such and such, so I need to run at this angle. I mean, they don't think about that. They've had so much experience they intuitively do all that, make the calculation, and have the answer in a tenth of a second. You see, the algorithm's there. They develop that algorithm through practice, and that's what we can do. So we have multiple talents. We can be, you know, very, very uh, unusually gifted in all sorts of things if we took the time and the trouble to do it. You, too, would know where to run to catch a ball if you tried it. 10,000 times, you see, you would eventually get the hang of it and you'd get good at it. And if you kept going, you'd get better at it. And if you kept going, you'd be world-class. Most people don't want to put that much time into catching a ball or swimming fast or whatever. It's just too much work and too much time for too little payoff. So we just all kind of average. But some people, for their own reasons, do get into that. How do we call that uh, people who are autistic are sometimes called a savant. And that means they can do some amazing things with their mind that ordinary people can't do. Well, they've got extra, extra time and attention, extra consciousness that's not engaged in the normal pursuits to do that. And if they get interested in it, then they do it and they do it and they do it. And if you do it enough, you get world class at it. And then everybody's amazed at the things that you can do. Even though you can't even pour a cup of coffee for yourself, you can do other things amazingly well. Yeah, the consciousness has huge potential and capabilities, and we use only a little bit of it. Yeah, we, we, I know we've touched on that question a couple of times before, Tom, and um, it's, it's, it's an interesting one of how the brain does work. So. Yeah. Well, see, that's the, when we say it's the brain, okay, we're giving all the credit to the brain. It's really the consciousness that's doing all the work. You know, the brain's a virtual brain. The brain no, is no more, you know, it's like the rock, you know, or, you know, the tree. It's just there. It's ones and zeros on a computer. It's a virtual brain. But it, because of the rule set, everything has to work by the rule set, including 
you know, the rule set that gives you cognition, which is the, in our, in our simulation, you know, that's the brain. So if that brain is defective in neurotransmitters, then the consciousness has some constraints that it wouldn't have if it wasn't defective in, or, you know, deficient in neurotransmitters. So if you're not a healthy person and you eat a lot of sugar and you never exercise and that brain's always foggy, well, the consciousness now has a constraint that it wouldn't have if you weren't like that. If you were healthy and fit and uh, clear-headed, then the consciousness would have less constraints. So the body and the brain set constraints on what the consciousness can do, what it has to work with. And, you know, that's, you know, that's really what we're talking about is that it's the, it's the constraints that the, by the rule set that limits the consciousness. And one of those constraints, of course, is that you can't create those algorithms like catching a ball unless you do it over and over and over and over again, because that's the way the rule set builds up algorithms, you see, in our simulation by repetitive training. So that's what it takes to do it. So the consciousness can't do it any faster because it's limited by the way the neurology works in the simulation. And the neurology works that way because that's the way it evolved to work. So the avatar always sets the limits on what the consciousness is able to do. So we're all busy doing the things we do every day so we don't have the time to train our brains to do, you know, nearly miraculous things because it takes too much effort. But it's there as a potential. But because the rule set makes it take a lot of time to do it, most of us don't.